beautiful Hollywood. Beautiful. Welcome to the show that explores the stories of those with a dream and how they make it happen. This is Beautiful Hollywood where we go deeper below the shiny surface of celebrity and success and look at that Hollywood state of mind that drives a dream. Hello, I'm Melanie Camp and today we're in Budapest, Hungary to chat with a man named Peter Grunberg. Now, so far Peter has experienced two very different dream careers. He came from Big Law, we're talking capital B, IG, capital L-A-W, all one word, I mean big serious law firms like William Cutler and Pickering, Mueller did time at that firm, so did Peter. And you know what, if you just go to beautifulhollywood.com you can um, follow some links and check out Peter's insane resume from his big money, big law days. But now Peter is on a very different career trajectory. He is the co-founder and director of a unique hospitality concept in Budapest. It's called Brody Land, part of which is Brody House. That is where we are sitting right now in the, I guess this is the lounge, right, Peter? Hi, Peter. Hello. <laughs> Good morning slash afternoon, depending where you are. Depending where you are, evening, night, middle of the night, it could be anything. I, I like the bio. I mean, that's, um, you yeah, know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, of course, but uh, yeah. Uh, is that, I thought that was all truth. Oh, <laughs> substantially, I suppose. But yes, so, nice yeah. to have you here and thank you for coming to Brody House. Oh, Budapest. I just, I absolutely love Budapest. It's really cool. And we're sitting, this is the dining area of, of Brody House. Indeed. I want to get on to the fact that you've basically lived two very big dream career lives. But first off, I think you need to explain to us what is Brody Land? Because we are sitting at Brody House. It's very nice. There's some people coming in and out. This used to be my bedroom, by the way. Really? Yeah. Okay, right. Explain. Explain <laughs> Brody Land to us, please. Brody Land is sort of a, a happy accident, shall we say. I came here about oh, 13, 14 years ago, 2005. And this was post-big lawyer days. I mean, big is a very generous term. I was a lawyer, that's true. Um, and I was at sort of the lower end of the food chain, but um, certainly part of that corporate dream, which absolutely a lot of people have and cherish and pursue. Anyway, back to here and... Yeah, we just sort of bounced in and figured out that Budapest had something interesting going on. All sorts of macro analysis you can go into. You can justify anything with statistics, so I'm not <laughs> sure I'm going to bore you with that. But we figured that Budapest was an interesting city and had stuff going on and potential for the future. Right, and when you say we, you've actually created Brody Land with your business partner. Correct. Who, uh, yeah, he's a very capable fellow. We've been friends for a long time. And so it was one of those things that people say don't mix business with friendship. I actually disagree with that. And uh, Will's a testament to that. I think the main thing is, yes, you can work with friends, but make sure they're the right friends. There's some friends you wouldn't choose to work with. You still need to be selective. Mm -hmm. And there's friends that you would choose to work with. And that could be based on skills, attitude, ambition, incentives, all that sort of thing. So you still need to go through the rigor. We did, you know, relative to each other. But the friendship adds that little bit of trust, that sort of depth, you know, that you're in the trenches together. And if you're mates, you're probably just going to push that a little bit harder, I think. Mm. And, and that's, that's the case here. Yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. At what point did you think Will would be a good business partner to work with? Well, we were sort of more social creatures <laughs> to start with. So business was something that came second. Okay, <laughs> which is probably how you created Brody Land because that's, this is a very social place. I mean, Brody House is, a, is essentially it's a hotel, bed and breakfast. Yes, it's... Um, I guess uh, Faulty Towers is probably the closest <laughs> analogy I can come up with. Thank you. Oh, thank you. My This is my assistant, Georgie. 
Yeah, she's much more glamorous than me. That should definitely should be your next guest. She just um, handed us some water. I'm going to have a sip. Oh, it's very generous of her. So, yeah, so it was faulty towers, shall we say, but with a strong art bent. And it was very much, um, we were just trying to do something which we felt was missing at the time. We were here investing in property, fine, not usually sort of exciting per se. Um, and then we just felt, actually, there's something a bit more there. There's, you know, the space in the city lends itself to doing things potentially more adventurous than we first anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so we had artists, and they, some of them would camp here, and then we'd have little studios here, and it was a bit kibbutzy, shall we say. Oh, wow. And, and then, less, I mean, it's it's really beautiful, and it's, it's I guess, that sh- is it shabby chic? Is that what people call it? What is, yeah. I don't know. It's like art. Crumbly walls, but like <laughs> painted in cool art everywhere. But before, when artists were just coming and squatting here, I suppose, and creating art and contributing to this space, was it a bit exactly. much more run down? Can you believe it? Yes, it was. <laughs> 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 yes, so things were falling off, and um, used to throw the key out the window to let people in. So we devised a system, put it on a big stretchy cable. So it theoretically would bounce, maybe not all the way back up to the window that we were up on the on the second floor or third floor from American terms. Um, but there was at least an intention. So there was a little bit of, yeah. you know, Heath Robinson meets Forty Towers meets art. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! And I, I just want to say, like Brody Land is there's Brody House, there's Paulay House, which is a bit more of a long long stay that's apartment right. service department. Yeah, we've got a few venues. So this is the first one. So yeah. this is V One, and the reason it's called Brody House. Um, we didn't go very long on the expenditure with the branding consultant because the street's actually called Brody Shandor Street. So we thought, well, Brody, Brody. And it sort of happened fairly organically that people would say, basically, we're going for free drinks and supper with Peter and Will, but then morphed into, we're going to Brody. And then uh-huh. we just stuck a house on it because we're in a house. Oh, so this was actually just your home to begin with. You were, Absolutely. You were yeah, yeah. living here. So as yeah. I said, this was my bedroom. Wow. Um, obviously, obviously a place of learning and a culture for, for many, many years. <laughs> Will's bedroom was across the way, and then he oh. moved to the back end of the building. And then we had an artist who was staying with us, a French artist called Etienne de Fleuriot. And he was a very talented artist, and he's now based in Paris. And again, sort of a serendipitous exercise. But uh, I used to work with his brother. Will lost a pinball game to him in a French castle, and suddenly the the... the Forfeit was he had to come to Budapest. Oh my goodness! So it's those sort of things, <laughs> these funny little accidents, and then what Will didn't tell him was it was a one-way ticket. So oh, there was he didn't look into the fine print. It's a bit of a heads you win or no, heads I lose or tells yeah. you win, yeah, whatever that sort of reverse scenario is. And so and Etienne Julie thought, hurrah, I've, I've locked out a nice trip to Budapest. But it was <laughs> but he uh, ended up being held always, captive for about always. two years. <laughs> always ask questions. That sounds great. I'm going to exactly. go to Budapest. Exactly. Yeah, I'm going. I'm, I'm off. To, I'm off to Budapest. But that's. So, I think in some ways that was probably quite indicative of the fabric that was created. So. A funny scenario where Etienne uh, ended up here. He then was sort of hosting dinners and you know, he didn't pay any rent, of course, um, and not that we expected it. But he would reciprocate in kind in a much more fun, uh, interesting way, in fact. So he was concerned about my, Will and my view of food and the English approach to diet. Of course, he's French. Even starving French artists eat very well. Oh, and so yeah. he would feed us at least once a week you know, have a nice dinner and lots of sort of fat red wine and then that would morph into conversations about art and we'd watch films and so in some ways they built this sort of social element that was totally natural. 
Yeah. And that then fed into more artists and then a couple of shows and suddenly the whole project, if you like, became not just a social one for our own yeah. personal gratification. And then we invited more people in and hey presto. Oh, and it morphed, so it morphed into a business. Yeah, really. yeah, I think it's, business was definitely a happy accent, shall we say. Yeah. So when we first came here to sort of do pretty plain vanilla property yeah. stuff. So, so I'm still slightly ashamed to admit now that we're in this, <laughs> now that you're in this groovy, I artsy know, thing. And I would and like to, yeah, so I mean we're talking about this fantastic little arts society group community that you've created with Brodie Land and there is of course Brodie Studios is a is bars and there's the writer's villa that's a little bit out of town so there's a lot of different properties but I I think so you got these properties because you came to be to invest in property in Budapest yeah that was the original original purpose so we first came here as I said thinking there was there were opportunities of one form or another and the easiest one seemed to be to provide interesting accommodation you know, for people that were maybe a bit more discerning about where they wanted to live, either visiting, working for big companies, etc. And that was fine. And we bought a couple, we flipped a couple and thought, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we decided to expand on that. And then, of course, we ran into Lehman's. See, that's what I was going to say. Timing-wise, when you say that you came here 13, 14 years mm. ago, that would have been a really great time to be getting into property and starting to flip. But then you came up to... You know, 20, wait, what was I saying? 2008? Yeah, 2008 happened. And the crash, the GFC, I think Americans call it the Great Recession. I don't know why it's called Great. Why do people use the word great before? Great Recession. Well, Americans say like Great Recession, I think, unless I'm wrong, my American buddies. Sorry. We'll we'll go with global because it was. Australians do say the GFC, which is the Global Financial Mm. Crisis. What do you call it? That's quite, yeah, the financial crisis. I mean, the days, the day you were like, there's been quite a few in the past. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. So basically, we ran into that, and we were sort of forced to reinvent sort of the format. And in some ways, it was a happy accident. I mean, obviously, it was painful as it was for many people. So, not to sort of celebrate gleefully and sort of with rose-tinted spectacles, but certainly we're forced to sort of reevaluate and say, yeah, right, do we just pack up and go, or do we, you know? get involved in something else and go hard or go home kind of situation yeah which is i mean from (coughs) now looking back i'm sure you're like oh yeah that was the right decision but when you're in the thick of it in 2008 i mean you say it was a happy accident and you seem very like oh yeah it was great you know we (laughs) there was a crash but there must have been a moment where you were you were you had everything invested in property here sure we'd gone long and all the hard work of the previous 10 years basically was looking dicey so um i mean know. how did that feel like what what i mean yeah i think many people probably felt the same way so i just took a view as well either set up and take what you've got and move on or yeah reformat okay this is interesting because i mean it was a lot of people really suffered and went through really sort of scary times and dark days in 2008 and it's interesting that you I'm sure it was pretty scary. It was. I'm sure it was scary for you. But right now, you're like, oh yeah, is that is this a British attitude of like, oh well, carry on, old chap. It's all good. Or well, there's probably a little bit of stoicism that's thrown in there for yeah. sure. Um, these things happen every. They're going cycles. So it's not like the only time. We're not the first generation to have suffered from these. Yeah, you know, that type of those turns of events. A lot of people suffered very acutely. Mm. And in our case. Um, well, we took a view. We were we were in a city which was beautiful, had lots of things going on. So we we're like, well, let's let's tough it out over here. And 
I think there is an argument to say, not to be glib about it, but you can say out of crisis is born opportunity. And so with that, we'd seen the art piece, we'd seen that perhaps that um, there were certain gaps in the market that weren't going to be filled anytime soon because, of course, a lot of companies were putting their horns in and not making investment. And so we figured out, well, actually, maybe if we just go a bit bold here and look at a hospitality model, which is probably simpler, dialed down, not overproduced, with an art element and a social element, that's, that has to be appealing. And in some ways, particularly in sort of difficult times, when people are reaching out for more positive things. Mm. And sure enough, we were fortunate to sort of see that take root and people vibed off it. And we had our art friends were very central to that whole you know, movement, if you like, and that vibe. And then, of course, you have a few film people and chuck some design. And we had a fil- film shoots and Vogue came here and you know, the whole series of things that then created this voice mm-hmm. that seemed to talk to people. Wow, that's, I don't know, I suppose you really were giving, you were giving as much as you were, I suppose, taking, taking the opportunity, but also giving a lot of people a place of refuge and a, a place to be... Certainly creative, yeah, absolutely. I think we wanted to make sure that creative people had their voices mm-hmm. heard. It wasn't quite so easy. I mean, you, you know how it is for young artists to try and find a gallerist, for example, is not easy necessarily and yeah we, we offered a sort of a space where people could be creative and mm-hmm. business people could hang out with art people and so on so we tried to make this very non-demographically specific group insofar as the, you know these people would meet and mm-hmm. in a quite natural way and some people bought the odd piece of work from the artist and so they could then you know roll on and keep producing and some of them have gone on to be quite successful in fact so that underpinned you know that exchange that honest exchange between people from different perspectives i think was was a major part of all of that actually before all of this i mean you're working in a big law firm and financial organizations and money is a big driver and we are told that money makes us happy did this time in budapest at the early days of brody land make you realize that perhaps money isn't all and for sure i think I have to say, I was never really totally subsumed into that corporate culture. I mean, it was pragmatic, of course, and frankly, lack of imagination. I think I just bumbled from university, went to, did a bit of time in a bank, and then bumbled into law school, and it's kind of like, it's fine, but um, it was for want of actually having a clear path. You know, if you're an artist, you're an artist. That's it. You know what you want to do. Or if you're a doctor, or people have very vocational things, then people may have a clearer view earlier on. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite typical of people going into you know, law firms or big banks or consultancies that they're probably academically, you know, qualified, of course, but maybe don't have a really distinct calling necessarily. And so I think I was just a, a late developer. Yeah, a late bloomer. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So, ah, I see, because I sort of thought of your past career as being something that is a dream career for someone, but it does make a lot of sense because I think even not just in law, but there are a lot of people who like, I don't really know where I'm going. And then they feel like it's too late. And I don't think it ever is too late. I completely agree with that. And again, I, I don't besmirch the corporate career at all. I mean, clearly it was, you know, you learn, you learn a lot. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, you are remunerated, you know. So, so I'm not going to knock it. And it works very well for certain people. And people can make be very happy about it and create good careers and live very comfortably and all that sort of thing. I just wasn't really ticking the boxes for me. I think I wanted to be a bit more entrepreneurial and call the shots and mm-hmm. and make decisions myself. 
some bad and some hopefully some good. So I guess the drive to be an entrepreneur and to, you know, take a risk was a lot greater yeah, for you than... absolutely. That, 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 I think, was fairly present from the beginning. So I was always sort of fighting that and wanting to create something else. And so it was probably just a matter of inevitability. And then mm-hmm. once you've got some skills, being an entre- entrepreneur from day one uh, obviously can work in many instances, but I think it's helpful to have a bit of life experience and some judgment and some proper work experience because then... You've got some frames of reference, which I needed. Yeah, I think, and we, I think we do sort of underestimate the value of that in a Western society, especially where we really value youth. I mean, I think less and less now we sort of realise that even though Britney Spears was a millionaire at eighteen and she made these great pop songs by twenty-four, she was shaving her head. So it's you know, and at twenty-four we're like, oh, I'm still got my hair. So okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> I didn't do the wrong thing. I think that's right. I think we. You know, it happens at the right time for the right reason. When people go like, wow, they were so obsessed with doing it so early, you know. Yeah. Life, it's, a, it's a long journey. It is, isn't it? It's a lifetime. I mean, we say life is short, but it's 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 a lifetime. Well, we'll probably live to about 120 anyway at this rate, won't we? Yeah. And they say that the, the person who's supposed to live to 500 has already been born. Oh, really? I think statistically. But anyway, Imagine living 500. Yeah. So you can pack a few things in. <laughs> That'd be rad. How long would you live for if you could live for? Oh, I don't know. I haven't gone Would there. you live forever? Would you want to live forever? I think it depends on what you're doing and who you're with. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. That's so true. So what did you... I mean, when was the switch? You were doing law. You were obviously getting paid good money. You probably had a great safe life. There were probably people around you who were like, oh, great, but you're crazy. You you should be happy with what you have. Like, what helped you get over that hump and move towards... Well, I think ultimately any person who can determine that is oneself. And people might, they might say things because they themselves say, oh, I wish I was doing that myself. Yeah, you never know what the perspective is. Maybe it's well-intentioned. Maybe they do think it's actually bonkers um, and that you're looking a gift horse in the mouth. All of those reasons are right or they could be wrong. Did you get a lot of people who were telling you, no, don't leave your, don't leave yeah, your some people, corporate career? Yeah, some people say, like, oh, you're really sure about that? And perfectly valid question. How did you soldier on through that? I mean, did it affect you at all? Well, I think at that point we, we were pretty young. So Will and I were both, what, 29 and just turned 30 respectively. So you know, I didn't have any dependents and we were in a fortunate position to be able to take a risk. And if it didn't work out, well, go back and figure it out. So I think it's the right time. And then you know, we had a clear vision. I think if it was just hopping off the, bu- off the bus or train or whatever analogy you want to use and just bumming around, sure, then that might not have worked out so well. But we did actually have a plan. Okay, the plan changed, but at least we had a plan. And I think that therefore, from other people, whether that's family or close friends or whatever, we'd say, fair enough, they've got a game plan. You know, So let, them, you know, let it play out and see what happens. How important is it to just to go for it? Yes, have a plan, but then understand to not get too hung up on the outcome. I mean, I suppose you guys went into Budapest with a plan and expecting a certain outcome. But what has resulted is proof that things change, whether you change your own dreams or whether outside forces change your dreams for you. Definitely. A bit of both, I think. Sure. In 2004 and five, when we were making our plan, when you look back at it, it was a pretty naive plan, by the way. But anyway. (laughs) And yeah, it was fine. It was stacked up numerically and it all looked very sensible. But there was, you know, we suppose the world would continue as it was at the same rate at which it was. Mm. Some people say that's a perfectly sensible assumption to make. Um, hindsight shows that that wasn't. 
But I think, yeah, it's uh, we we had a we had a view. We were committed to it. We then staked a lot on it, so we couldn't suddenly be oh, well, let's give up. So we'd invested, you know, had enough skin in the game to make sure that we really had to make that work. And that, I think, was a big motivator. Plus, there's probably a slightly stubborn streak in both of us, mm. which is not wanting to, you know, go home and say, that didn't work out so well. So we sort of thought, right, we'll dig deep and make sure it will work. Right, right. Carry on. And it may not be tomorrow, maybe a year, maybe five, maybe ten. Who knows? And How many years did it take to make it work from when you arrived in... Budapest. Well, I think, I mean, the crisis, yeah, I mean, certainly in the first few years, we were all moving forwards according to plan, and that was fine. I mean, the crisis here, not sort of going to too much into all these fiscal things, but you know, it ran on for quite a, quite a long time, actually. So I think only really in sort of 2013 and 14, you could say that the economy was actually kind of bouncing back, um, or at least comparable levels to what it was prior. There's many reasons for that, and right or wrong and the way the banks did or didn't take write downs and all sorts of things but so it was quite stagnant and and so I think a lot of people were sort of treading water trying to make ends meet and um, and then then yeah so from that point onwards you could feel that sort of the generally the wheels were turning and investors were coming to Budapest they had bigger investors coming to Budapest and, and you can see it when you're walking around there's a lot of development going on mm. the whole city has evolved there's so many different manifestations of that um, mm-hmm. So I, I say, yeah, last you know, last couple of years, we feel like we're we're sort of part of that, and we can feel that wave, and yeah, let's hope it continues. But it's taken time. It take everything takes time. I think exactly. that's what we we don't we sort of say well, yes. So we struggled, and then we've now we've got success. But there's that big chunk of time of oh, I guess almost ten years. You guys have been sure. I mean, t- time is absolutely. I think the again, without going too deep into these sort of philosophical <laughs> reflections on how <laughs> corporate world is, but. You know, a lot of it comes down to this, this short time frames within which investors or private equity investors typically think, you know, maybe sort of three years, five years, max seven. That's quite a short time, really. Mm. And the reality of actually building a business, it takes you five years, really, just to get up and running and build a team and all that sort of thing. And I think in some instances, depending on the, what type of sector it's in, you know, 10 years. Is, and, and so in some ways, it's a sort of, you know... Uh, I would say Western, but a, a capitalist dilemma, which is sort of imposing these short time frames, these artificial expectations. Some will work, some may not. Um, I think that is potentially unhelpful. You would say to someone, "Hang in there, keep." Well, yeah, what would you say to someone who's working on a dream and is three years in? Because I mean, there is, there's a, there is a, some. You've got to know when to quit, I guess. Well, and well, when to push, keep going. You say you're stubborn. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. <laughs> Maybe you say I'm just never give up. Precisely. I'm definitely mm. that, yeah, and, and, and will. Similarly, it's like if we see something that's not working, we want to fix it. and We'll just keep going till we fix it. So right. <laughs> maybe a bit flagellistic in that regard. Yeah. Um, so I don't know there's a right answer. It just depends on ultimately. Is it, if, if, it's, if the fire is in your belly and you want to do it, you should probably follow that. If you're equivocating, there's probably a, or vacillating, whatever. Yeah, you know, then there's probably a reason for that. Mm. And I think if if you're vacillating about something, it's very hard to dig down and put that little extra push in. That's so true. It's you need to have your heart in it to be able to go that extra mile to be able to. And I think, yeah, persistence is so important for anything. Yeah, I saw I saw the TEDx talk sort of a couple of years ago, which happened to resonate, and it was saying how. 
with education and what are the values you want to impose on children and you know this is obviously a very live subject certainly as we sort of get deeper and deeper into into tech and all that sort of thing in ai and the main thrust of this message was that grit was one of the most powerful characteristics and this was a lady in the us and she was advocating that employers look for grit mm. or should look for grit more than perhaps the more conventional things like grades and whatever else you know those are people can acquire them people can you know can be overtrained and and that's also down to whether you have you know you're born into a sort of fortunate environment when parents can throw money at the problem or indeed you've been supported and so on but grit that's a different thing and that i mm. think is a is a strong characteristic how what would you how would you identify grit grit in someone and how would you ex- describe your own grit that's two questions. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'll kick back. <laughs> Over to you. Grit, I think it's, yeah, there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, ultimately it's about persistence and not giving up. Um, some people may say, well, grittiness can actually be stupid because you keep going till you know, so you can't carry on. Yeah, yeah, so actually it could be, it could be, a, it could be a curse. But typically I, I'd say, at least from my perspective and sort of the, char- the people that we work with and, and we, we see that characteristic is just rolling the sleeves up and, and cracking on with it and not, you know, not moaning, not whining. And as far as how we, you know, Will and I, I say the royal we, like to exhibit that, yeah, I think it's get on the trenches, roll your sleeves up. Mm. So if something's not quite ready and you've got a, you know, tight deadline, well then you go and put the gloves on and get involved and we've done that whether it's on construction or whether it's chopping up carrots or whether that's you know pouring wine we've done you know cleaning loose you know we've done all those tasks yeah right you're um, not like oh i'm the boss i'm not cleaning can someone go and you'll be like the no, loonies sure cleaning I think i'll it's, do it yeah it's, it's the napoleonic rule which is you know you sleep in the same barracks as the troops and sure efficiency dictates that we don't necessarily do all those things all the time but at least we have done it. And I think that, I hope at least that um, our team would recognise that. Yeah. And, and you'd probably do it again if it had to be done. Done it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably uh, an illustration of the grit that we have. Mm-hmm. And that we'd like to, hopefully, you know, people have picked up on that. And actually talking about getting in there and doing things with your hands. One thing that I think is really cool is a lot of the furniture here. You guys made it. We have indeed. And funny enough, that sort of came about go back to 2008 but <laughs> we basically run out of money and so we thought well we better we need some tables and chairs and a few bits and pieces so let's get the saw and i love this that you now it comes you had you had run out of money basically absolutely i love that you're so cheery about yeah you know it was just a, a great opportunity came up that we got to transition and basically you were out of money and you made some furniture yeah, and you transitioned ha- your dream amazing yeah we so basically thought well we've got a you know, use things that we have and some of the items we had were nice and so we could sort of repurpose them. Some of them just needed, you know, lick of paint or but of you know, sanding down. And and I think what it sort of forced us to do was to see well, what do we actually have? What raw material do we have? And it ties in with and we are quite eco conscious and so that sort of resonated with insofar as well use what you've got. That we had that we needed to was an <laughs> was was another imperative. But it sort of came naturally. And so, yeah, we picked things up off the street and chairs out of skips and upholstered them. I remember <laughs> I remember, I went on a date uh, around that time and 
and it was really stormy and pissing down the rain. And there was a skip, and I saw a little sort of wooden handle popping out of all the crap. And so the lady I was with looked a little strangely as I jumped into the skip and sort of moved all the rubbish out. <laughs> um, it was pretty gross. And um, she said, what are you doing? I said, oh, well, there's a lovely chair there. It happens to be that one there. And so oh, I, really? with this chair over here? Yeah. I'm going to take a photo of that, and I'm going to put it up. And, and so I yanked it out the skip and put it over my shoulder and yeah that was not hugely date conducive yeah i was gonna say how did the date go after that did she come did she did she yeah i think so her view of me perhaps changed a little bit but um did you get a second date yeah she's very charitable (laughs) but the chair's still here the the chair is it's a really it's a really nice chair actually it has been cleaned and upholstered since uh 2008 when it was yanked out of a skip so yeah, oh, don't wow. worry. It's, it's it's fairly it's fairly sanitary now. You are good at identifying an opportunity. I think that chair symbolizes. <laughs> so maybe that's the grit. Yeah, literally, yeah. physically, and literally. Um, and so there's one of my favorite Hungarian words is actually "lom tolomitash." Hopefully, I said that right. But it's basically this culture where people were just like, "It's a chuck out day." I think Paris had it for in for, for a certain period of time. I don't know if it still carries oh, have on. Have they got it? I don't know. We were driving from the airport, and there was a lot of trash on the side. I think that's just rubbish. Oh, okay. 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 Who knows? But each district um, in Budapest will have one, if not two, days a year when they basically say to the citizens, just like you know, residents, just you can freely dump your stuff on the street. And I think actually it's a pretty cool idea because the the purpose is that one, people just throw stuff out, which otherwise may be too bulky or difficult to do. I don't need a car and so on. And actually what's funny is that people often throw things, you know, wooden items that they may be tired of, you know, grandmothers, blah, blah, blah. And and you'd be surprised that actually some decent things were thrown out. So certainly in the early years, we would just clock these long Tommy Tash days and just drive around with a truck and dump all these, pick these things up and dump them in. And then we had a workshop, we still do. And in that workshop, clean them up. Wow. Did you have much? Like, did you? Were you trained in carpentry, or so, or did you self self train? I, I did a, an awful lot of um, um, wood shop when I was about eight and nine, <laughs> so I think that probably probably qualifies. <laughs> and and to be fair, Will's much more practical, so um, he uh, yeah he would lead lead the charges on these things. But I certainly you know if it's if it's wooden and material then i don't mind if it's got electrics or gas then it's very much his domain oh okay oh wow so okay. yeah so we just you know force of necessity so partly we needed to do it secondly the more once we started that thinking then of course you open up you know open your eyes and go oh my god there's so many things around that you could be could be utilized more productively and then of course you could argue we're a little obsessed by it and so now you know, it's almost like a game. If someone has to buy a new chair, then that's, oh, you've crumbled. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. We should all do it. I mean, it does say a lot to the fact that we do take for granted how much we have around us and, and resources that are available. For sure. I mean, that's, I think that's a common issue and it's obviously often discussed right now. Um and it was then, but I think now the subject matter is well on the table, clearly. I mean, this table we're on right now is made of offcuts. So these are bits of floor or things that we'd used for other purposes. Mm. And, you know, I had a big pile of these things and then stick them together with a bit of glue and a little bit of polyfiller and a bit of lac, uh, or lacquer, rather, and then 
Hey, Presto, you got a tabletop. Maybe everyone should go out and try and make a chair and realise how resourceful they are. Did this teach you that you were – I mean, did you always realise you were resourceful or did this take it to the next level? I think human beings are, period. Mm. Every, every single person. The question is, do they want to and do they need to? So it's about motivation. Yeah. In our case, we needed to. And yes, okay, if you go back and I play with Lego and all that sort of thing. So definitely it's been a value within my upbringing of making stuff. Yeah. And this is just like doing adult Lego, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, wish I, could, I wish I could do more of it now. Um, we did a lot more of it when we started. And of course, now we are you know, supposed to manage people doing yeah. these things. I wish sometimes I quite liked it myself a bit more. But yeah, maybe that's the full circle. Come around to that at some point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is that is an interesting part of dream chasing or dream doing is you get to a point where you're doing what you wanted to be doing. And then it gets bigger than just you and you have to start getting other people involved. And then next thing, you're not actually building the chairs and tables that you want to be building, but you're actually going through the admin and making sure that, you know, dealing with exactly. employee disputes and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's called building a business and it's called management. That's part of the, part of the, you know, the reality of, of growing, isn't it? Yeah. And um, yeah, then carving out enough time to do the fun stuff too. Yes. How do you find that balance? Oscillates. I mean, we're still you know, very much engaged with the product and you know, that's of the art side of things. And, and uh, yeah, it, it is great fun. But yes, we still do spreadsheets and contracts. And, <laughs> and so back to your question, what is Brody Land? I mean, it's partly physical, physical space, and we're one of them. But also there's a human element, there's a community bit, which is shorthand membership. Try to use, try to avoid the word member mm. and membership because I think it's a bit proprietary. But that's another another point. But and so we have a lot of cultural and, and creative opportunities through the club life that we've built, and, that, and we we participate in that you know with great pleasure. So you know there could be we called alchemy nights when mm. our head of bar will then come up with sort of creative cocktails and link that with either art, music, film and so on. I did an alchemy night the last time I was here. You did indeed. Yes, yes. that's right. It was, it was a rum. It was fantastic. So so those kind of things. So mm -hmm. we can get involved. And actually, these are people who know much more than we do about stuff. So right. we can be a passenger. And that's rather fun. I see. So it's not really like, oh, I have to do the admin. It's like, wow, I now have access to people who are even who are better than For I am sure. and more skilled and I'm getting more from it. So it's that. So yeah, I think right. that's, yeah, mm. it's, it's ultimately there are many very capable people out there who know a great deal more than we do about pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. And it's about hooking them in. So wow. making ourselves redundant so we can therefore, you know. Oh, and then you really, really can kick back and. Yeah, well, that's not <laughs> going to happen <laughs> any minute now. But certainly the objective is, yes, bring mm. in more capable people. They add more mm -hmm. to the mix, whether that's the physical side of the space or the human side of the yep. community. Right. And Brodie Land, so going back to the it's not membership, I think you explained it as you can get a visa Correct. to access Brodie Land. It's a little bit of a doff of the cap to world affairs, so not <laughs> going too deep into that because, as I say, you shouldn't talk about politics and all that. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's about access and it's a privilege we think mm -hmm. um, we're not necessarily the, we don't be sort of the sole custodians of that. We have a team, and also, also the community regulates itself. So, you know, if John says, "Well, I meet you know Dora, and she's cool," well, then great. 
that okay. works for us. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately we trust the people who have who are stakeholders within that community mm-hmm. to kind of let it develop organically. Right. That, yeah, that makes a lot of and sense. It's, it's not particularly linked. I mean, it's from 18 to 80. There's a broad range of people. Um, the majority are Hungarian, I hasten to add, certainly in Budapest, that, that are part of that community. Yeah. Um, it's outward-looking. People typically speak English. Well, they do speak English, and oftentimes very good. And there's a cultural openness. Yeah. So it's, it's very loosely defined. Mm. Um, it's almost like a, a virtual house party or a dinner party. And really, you get a taste of it when you come and stay at... when you stay at Brody House or Palais House because you get a little three-day visa or four, however long you're staying, right. you get a little yeah. visa so you get to experience the whole Brody land experience while you're staying at Brody House. So I think that makes it less uh, not exclusive because it kind of feels – you still feel like you're part of an exclusive club but actually it is accessible I suppose is the better way yeah, to Yeah, I mean I think in some ways there are these paradoxes that we like to adopt so exclusively inclusive. You know, we don't want to be sort of pushing people away. That's not the point and mm. certainly we want to make sure that a cost is not an impediment. It's just about a way of being, really. Yeah. And, and so we have different forms of visas. There would be, you know, from artist visas to mirth visas for comedian comedians um, <laughs> to Brodie Wood, which is a reference to the film. So Brodie Wood visa, people in the film industry, of which is, oh, is a big part oh, of, of what's going Wood. on here. Oh, Brodie Wood. It yeah. is. A, I mean, film, there's a lot of people I know that are here at the moment who are working on TV shows and films. Yeah, it's been a big thing the last couple of years. Well, it's been going on for some time, actually, but I think it's got more airtime in the last five or six years, and it's become very visible. And so big productions, and um, there's been a major, I think, a kind of clear policy here of trying to attract that mm-hmm. and make it attractive. I think it's been you know, eminently sensible, at least from, from as far as I can see. So there's tax breaks, of course, and, and film companies or big productions are clearly motivated to, to save tax. I mean, that's, I think, yeah. otherwise a lot of films wouldn't get made. And Budapest has positioned itself very well to absorb that. And so you've got big US-UK productions, TV and film, have been coming here for years. And then there's some very capable people here on the production side who are facilitating that too. And is it, uh, what came first? Have the skilled local technicians, camera people, lighting people, pr- producers, have those people come bec- or grown up in a city that is becoming more and more, not Hollywood, but is a film town, Budapest. It's for sure regards a film town now. I mean, it's, you can probably dig out some stats, but I think it's the second, how you measure it, but in vertical commas, biggest film city in the EU. Wow. I think London is the first, and that's largely because of pre and post production and some of the old studios that are, you know, clearly it's got a legacy there. Yeah, and local Budapest. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But Budapest is, is very significant. And um, so there's probably a, there's a chicken and egg question. I think mm. some people have argued, who know much more about these things than I do, but the Hungarians are very good photographers. And a lot of f- photographic heritage comes from you know, Kappa, for example, who was, uh, or Kertes, there's a few Hungarian photographers that you probably would have known. People think they're American, actually, and Kappa became American, but he was originally Hungarian. So maybe there's something that sort of lies and resides deep in the sort of the cultural matrix of, of of Hungarian society. And so if good photographers make good lighting people, good make DOPs, make good cameramen. Yeah. I suspect there might be an element of that. Yeah. Then of course it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because big company or big production companies say, Oh, it's affordable, better value for money. Great local hires. Great local hires, attractive city, good architecture. 
you know, it's a pretty powerful mix. Mm. And quite clearly, it's appealing to some very significant filmmakers. Wow, it's amazing how it's all converged. I feel that Budapest is a very artistic town. You, ten years ago, were creating Brody Land of whatever you thought it was going to be back then and what it has become. But it is interesting how you could never have predicted that film would have become so big here and that the art no. culture would have yeah, been we didn't, what it was. At that point, we were just sort of, you know, toughing it out and seeing what was going to happen. Yeah. So you know, we didn't really have a sense of where it was going to go. We sort of had a feeling, so the sort of... Th- you know, that feeling in your stomach, mm. you know, sort of Malcolm Gladwell stuff, isn't it? You know, you sort of just sense somehow or other there's something of, in, there's a scope there. Yeah. Um, and of course the film stuff, you know, it was starting around then and I guess it's been sort of the last 10, 12 years, at least that I've been aware of and it may well predate that, but certainly at this level it's been building up. So, yeah, it's, it's done a lot to put Budapest on the map. That's really amazing. And then you were... They're able to seize an opportunity, I suppose. Sometimes we're just telling a story. We're purveyors of stories, mm. plural, and not just our own. That's just incidental. I mean, the interesting stories are about the the city. Each building that we operate has a story. Oh, All yes. the artists have stories. Yeah. And in some ways, this is why I guess why the filmmakers like it. I mean, it's a city that lends itself towards telling stories. I mean, I love the story of Brody House because that's... Okay, you're going to have to say the doctor's name. Do- Dr. Taufer. Um, T-A- William Talfa, yeah, was he? William? Vilmos, very Vilmos. good, yeah, yeah. Vilmos is Hungarian for William. And Dr. Talfa was a well-to-do gynecologist. And this building we're in right now, this is actually his private residence, and he had his practice here as well. So, yeah, he obviously had a, quite a grand existence and he yes. entertained people. So I think this floor and the floor below were where he entertained Wow. There were bedrooms at the back, which, mm-hmm. as they are now. And then on the ground floor, I think you came in and there was probably a reception, which yes, it right. will be again. Oh, it will be again. I, I think it, his story is amazing because he was very... Basically, he was the father of the modern-day Caesarean, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, we can get a fact check on that, but that's what I've been led to believe. <laughs> and funny enough, when my second child was born, um, not far from here, it's a sort of Semmelweis, which is, a, again, another very well-known Hungarian contributor to science... And I was in Semmelweis Hospital and, you know, sort of just pacing around, not really quite sure what's going on and looking at my clock. And I saw some feet and they were Dr. Taufer's feet. Really? So there was a, yeah, it's a, sta- it's a, um, a statue of his in the Semmelweis Hospital, which is just down the road. Wow. So, yeah, he was a, he was a real person. He was clearly um, accomplished. Yeah, it's um, amazing. Well, do you know, I found out after the last time I stayed here, that my grandmother was actually born caesarean in the 1930s. Oh, yeah. And so he was doing work, what, mid-1800s to well, late-1800s? He, he, he commissioned this house and it was built in sort of 1896. See, I just wonder if maybe I wouldn't even be here if not for him. Well, I think a lot I of people wouldn't be here but for, <laughs> but for him. So yeah. so, yeah, so he was an influential medical fellow. And, um, and that's just a story. A which story. Is, Nothing that we've created. It's it's just something that's here. We've blown the dust off it. I mean, is, maybe is that what we should be doing when we're chasing dreams is think more about creating a story. Think of our lives and what we're going for as being part of what will one day be a full story that we're only in chapter one, two or, you know, three Perhaps. of. I think, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Um, you know, we are our own producers, our own directors, you know. We're, we're sort of doing all three, basically. Maybe not always aware of it, um, but people buy into stories. You know, mm. we're, we're 
campfire creatures once upon a time. That's how we learned. You know, we listened to the village elder and they would tell us an interesting story and would sit. And I think, you know, certainly if you reflect back on your child, a lot of things you learned were through stories, either in the classroom on a structured fashion or even through older family members who tell you something. And it would just sit somehow and bed itself in your hard drive. Do you think that can... I mean, yes, that's great. But then sometimes embedded in our hard drive is a story that perhaps is not quite... maybe needs some fact-checking. And when we're told (laughs) you can't do this or you're not good enough, perhaps we shouldn't be listening to some stories. True. Um, And, yeah, I guess... Well, you can see people who can correct that sort of thing, can't you? Yeah. Um, Or indeed you can sort of uh, take it yourself. And I think that's part of... You know, evolving as, as as adults, that some of these things are embedded in the hard drive. Hopefully, they're positive, and if they're not, well, then you've got to work at you know moving forwards and developing your own stories. Perhaps replace that one. Yes. Beyond the realms of my my skill sets, there, but oh um, no, well, I don't you know because I think that's what you seem to have been able to adapt your story to move with the opportunities that have come in front of you. Yeah, and we've been very fortunate to have some interesting fellow storytellers or fellow actors within that story. Yeah. And Etienne, the French artist, and Ludo, whose piece is over there, he happened to, you know, he's a, he's another part of that story. He won the Luxembourg Art Prize this year. It's a very prestigious wow. contemporary art prize. And so his first atelier was actually in Brody House, and he actually learned to ply his trade, um, courtesy of Etienne, who was the wow. French artist. So that's actually quite a good manifestation of, of the sort of things we're talking about. He has a story. He's part of that story that we purvey. He's got his mm. own story now. And it's positive. Mm. You know, it's good energy. And he's now achieved recognition, which he thoroughly deserves. That's amazing. And back in the day when Ludo was here, just plying his trade and practicing, did you ever look and go, oh, wow, he's going to win a massive prize one day? Or did you just go, yeah, cool, there's a dude doing his thing. Good on you. Like that guy? Yeah, I think it's about... Yeah, he had great personal energy and I thought he's just really decent bloke. Mm. And he just worked hard. And you know, he'll, he himself will admit that some of his work was a little naive to start with. But it had some, and he's now refined it and refined it. And he's obviously done the, the 10,000 hour time thing, right? The grit, uh, applied his grit. Absolutely. And now he's producing really yeah, top-notch work and he's got international recognition. So, you know, raw talent is one thing, but he's really worked at his craft. I like that. I like that because I think sometimes we limit ourselves because we think we're not good enough, we're not talented enough, we don't have what it takes, but really you can. Yeah. You talk about seizing opportunities. What would you say to someone who thought, well, it's okay if you get opportunities, people who feel like they don't have access to opportunities, what would you say to someone? Uh, there's, there's, def- there's several answers to that. One is that, you know, you've got to put yourself on, in the way of good luck. And again, I speak without any particular qualification to speak on these sort of things and I can only reflect on my own experiences whether that's relevant or not I don't know but there's a few thoughts for example there's a guy called Gary Player who was quite well known professional golfer in the 60s and 70s from South Africa and he used to say the more I practice the luckier I get which I think is quite an interesting thought so insofar as you know you just just keep grinding it out yeah and Ludo is probably an example of that sure he's fortunate to have won that prize it didn't come out of nowhere it, didn't, it wasn't like a sort of random lotto tick and he happened to win that he's done his 10 plus years of 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 hard graft and yes fortune starts from the bit where you know from from the get-go you know when you pop out and you know, nature nurture circumstance all these sort of things you know some people are very fortunate some people are far less fortunate hopefully doesn't predetermine everything thereafter 
rubbish things will happen to everybody as well. So mm. it's just a question of when, not if. Well, I mean, what kept you going? I mean, at some point you had no money and you were going around skips, repurposing broken <laughs> furniture. How did you see that as an opportunity? Why didn't you just go, oh my gosh, we're just going around and getting rubbish furniture, that's it, let's go home. There's no furniture here, it's all trash. But instead you said, this is something I'm going to repurpose. Yeah, I think there's a sort of subconscious voice in all of us, isn't there? Mm. So not quite sure, really. Um, was that opportunity? I mean, it was, this is sort of there's a there's a chimpanzee element, isn't there? That you suddenly see, you know, we are ultimately chimps still yeah. of one form or another, mm. and so you see that little thing, that sort of shiny arm glistening, a nice wooden arm glistening out of the out of the rubbish. And your first instinct is to grab it, perhaps. Maybe it's not, like we say opportunity. Maybe opportunity is a hindsight thing. We look back and we go, oh, I took that opportunity. But at the time, you were just in the moment doing your thing and making your choices. I think there's probably an element of that. I mean, sure, we aspired, we sort of play back in our minds how that went. But yes, we saw a gap, we saw an opportunity in Sepharis. There were, there were limited avenues for quirky boutique accommodation in Budapest. Mm -hmm. That was a fact. Mm -hmm. That gap's been addressed. But you could have translated that as there are no quirky hotels in Budapest because no one wants it and so we shouldn't do it. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they're just smarter and that we're yeah. perhaps more stubborn. Who knows? Well, I think everyone should come to Brodie Land oh. and check it out. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Peter. Not at all. Well, thank you for showing the interest in what we're doing. <laughs> Just want to give a shout out to our traveling partner, Wondersafe. Wondersafe is a really cool new app that provides safety information that gets you in the know before you go, wherever it is that you're going to go traveling. Uh, also, you can contribute your experiences and help other travelers. It's a really cool little app, in-app in community. You can get it from the App Store and find out more at wondersafe.com. This is Beautiful Hollywood. We're online at beautifulhollywood.com. When you're in Budapest, remember, stay at Brody House and visit all of Bradyland. Brody.land is their website. I'm Melanie Camp. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful Hollywood. Beautiful.